Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 19. We're in the middle of the chapter, picking up verse 16. We've been working our way through John since the beginning of 2021, and I'm happy to report that, Lord willing, we will finish it here in the next few weeks, unless Jesus comes back again. And if that's the case, we won't need the Gospel of John anymore. I realize that on any given Sunday with a congregation, a group of people this large, there are so many things that might be crowding in on you. You might be just a little tired. You might just be in a rut. You might be distracted from something that's going on in your life that you are really worried about. Uh, You might, because we're all just sort of weak and fragile, you might just be sort of in a rut of kind of just some laziness and self-centeredness. You might be fearful about the future. You you, you might be really worried about a child or a loved one or a job. You may be a little bit overwhelmed by the size of this room. You may be new to church. You're here. You're wondering. You're taking it all in. It's a little intimidating. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you're just a little bit tired and kind of going through the motions. I don't know what's going on in your life today, but can, you, can we do something right now? We're going to read a passage of Scripture that is at the very height of the Bible's message. It's, it's the Son of God crucified. And we're going to read, we're going to zero in on three words that Jesus says at the end of this text that I think are some of the most important words in the Bible. And if we understand what Jesus meant by these words, we, we are well on our way to understanding the message of Christianity, the hope of the world, the most important news that anyone could ever know. Now, here's, here's what I'm asking you to do. We, we live in an age of distractions, and I'm asking you, communication is a two-way street. I'm asking you to, to do your part. I'm going to do my best to do my part to explain this text to you. I'm asking you to do your part. Would you lean forward? Would you, would you do your best to pay attention? Would you give me grace for my limitations? And would, would we think about, consider, hear from the Lord today? If we can do that then I trust that the Lord will do wonderful things with his word. So let me pray. We're going to work through this passage, and then we're going to zero in on Jesus' words in verse 30. Let me pray. Lord, help us. Help me. Lord, we, we need to pay attention. We're distracted. We're, we have the attention span of, of infants, some of us. We're so used to looking at screens and scrolling and flicking and changing channels and going from this to that, that it's, it's become almost impossible for some of us to, to focus. Lord, help us today. Lord, distractions. Lord, give us the grit to not be taken out so easily. And Lord, help me and help my brothers and sisters and friends in this room to see and hear the truth of the good news of what you have done in your son. 
for Christians in this room, Lord, let it build them up. Let it, let it fasten their hands even more tightly to the glory of the gospel. And for people in this room that do not know, yet know Jesus, Lord, would you give them eyes to see? Would you give them what you require of them? Would they finally look away from themselves and look to Christ? And would you be glorified in everything that happens in our time together? And would, as we leave this place, Lord, would we say we have met with the Lord? Lord, do what I pray. In spite of me, in spite of us, for your name, for your glory, in Jesus' name, I pray, amen. John 19, picking up halfway through verse 16. We read last week that Jesus has been handed over by Pilate to be crucified, verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Let me just pause there and say that you may notice that the crucifixion of Jesus is mentioned in all four Gospels. John is particularly terse and short in his description of the crucifixion. He's not focusing on the physical suffering of Jesus, although that could be thought about and focused on. John is more so even than the other gospel writers making a spiritual point about Jesus' work rather than a point about his physical suffering. And he's with brevity of language just explaining to us the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read... Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Remember the dispute, the conversations that Pilate had with the Jewish leaders in the verse before the passage we looked at last week. And Pilate was rather frustrated with these Jewish leaders. And so he writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews, verse 20, read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And you could read into that, I think, a little frustration in Pilate's voice, because, as I mentioned, he had been in a kind of conversation with these Jewish leaders, a frustration. Essentially, these Jewish leaders who were under the authority of Pilate, the Roman governor, were trying to back Pilate into the corner to do their dirty work for them to crucify Jesus so that they didn't have to do it. And Pilate, as we read last week, said, look, I don't find any guilt in him. And then they realized that their plan wasn't working, and so they basically threatened Pilate with sort of tattletailing on him to the, the emperor Caesar in Rome. And so Pilate finally capitulates, so he's frustrated with him, and he says, what I've written, I've written. And in irony, which is part of what John uses in the Gospel of John, what Pilate writes in frustration and sarcasm about Jesus is completely true. He is the king of the Jews. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, 
but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill Scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that's a quote from Psalm 22, which I think, along with Psalm 110, is the most quoted psalm, maybe the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament of any Old Testament passage. And this is a psalm of David, a kind of foreshadowance of the cross. And here we see Jesus in his crucifixion and these soldiers rolling dice to divide up his, his, his tunic. It's fulfilling scripture according to God's sovereign plan. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Let me pause there. And just I want you to note the tenderness of Jesus. He is literally moments away from death, having been scourged and beaten and hanging on the cross. And yet, in this moment of incredible anguish, his focus is on his mother, the tenderness of Jesus towards Mary, telling her and really telling his best friend in some sense, John, to take care of his mother. In verse 28, after this, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And that's quoting Psalm 69, fulfilling that prophecy about what Jesus would say on the cross. So it's not only fulfilling scripture, but it's giving us a picture of the humanity of Jesus even on the cross, thirsting. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Verse 30, again, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, if you've spent any time in church circles, any time reading your Bible, any familiarity with the Gospels, and if you're not, that's okay. I'm glad you're here. This final statement of Jesus on the cross is one of the most profound and important statements in all of the Bible. And as we consider this This scene of Jesus, the Son of God, dying on the cross before we get into the glory of His resurrection in the following week. I want us to think about these three all-important words, and I want us to understand what Jesus meant by these words, it is finished. If we understand what Jesus meant by it is finished, We are well on our way to understanding the very heart of the purpose of the Bible, the gospel itself, the good news of how a holy God has reconciled sinful people to himself through his son. So to help us understand this phrase, 
this sentence, these words from Jesus, it is finished, I want to ask five questions and do my best to answer those five questions. First, what did he finish? What is it that Jesus is referring to when he says, it is finished? Does he just mean his earthly life, his approximately 33 years on the earth? Is he talking specifically about the, the, the event of his crucifixion, his actual death? No. Jesus is talking about something grander. He's talking about the work that the Father gave him to do. And all throughout John, Jesus refers to this. Let me give you a couple clues. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, to the crowd, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, meaning the Father. So Jesus has come to the earth for a particular mission, and it's the mission, the work that the Father has given him to do. John chapter 5, verse 36. The testimony that I have, this is John spe- Jesus speaking again, is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus is saying that the Father, again, same sentiment as the verse we just read in John 4, the Father has given him work to do. And I think we see this summarized in totality in John chapter 6, this wonderful, important passage that Jesus says after he has walked on the water and fed the multitudes. He says in verse 37 of John 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And Jesus is speaking about Christians. All those that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, the Father's mission, the Father's work. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him, should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And so what is Jesus saying there? He's saying that the Father has given the Son a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And who are these people? Well, we know from the rest of the Bible that mankind, every man, woman, and child, by nature, by birth, is a sinner dead in our sins, and so God the Father has given to the Son a a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who are lost, dead in their sins, and he says to the Son that your work is to live your life and do something that will bring these dead sinners back to life and bring them all the way back to me. That's what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 6. And in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 4, Jesus summarizes this. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So what is is the work? What did he finish on the cross as he died on the cross? The answer is, is that Jesus finished the work of redemption that the Father sent him to accomplish. The Father did not, send Jesus, did not send Jesus to be a mere ethical teacher or, or somebody that 
hands out moral principles by which we should live, although Jesus did that and he taught that, and many ethical teachings and moral principles that we should follow. But the primary work of the Son was to accomplish something which was the redemption of all those that the Father would give to him through his life and death and resurrection. Question number two, why was it necessary? Why was this necessary? Well, to answer that, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, we answered this just a moment ago, but, but God created the world and everything in it, and then he created Adam and Eve, and he put them in the garden, and he gave Adam a command. He gave Adam a law, and he said to Adam and Eve, he said, you can eat of anything in the garden except for that one tree. Don't eat of that. If you do, you will surely die. And we know how that story goes in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, in fact, do disobey God. They eat of the tree. And because they disobeyed God's law, death, sin entered into humanity. In fact, Romans chapter 5 verse 12 summarizes for us what happened in the garden centuries before when Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam and Eve, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so Adam and Eve, Adam in particular, as the head of the human race, because of his failure, because of his disobedience, because he disobeyed the law of God, he then becomes the source, the fountainhead of all of humanity, the head of all of humanity, and everything that comes, that flows from Adam now is tainted with that sin, everything that flows out of that faucet, that first faucet of humanity is polluted. It's polluted with sin. And that sin, what does it bring? It brings death. It brings spiritual death. It brings separation from God. We were meant to dwell with God in the garden, to be with Him in perfect fellowship. But sin has separated us from God. And now God, and we see this in Genesis 3, he, he excommunicates Adam from the garden. He kicks him out of his presence. He sends him away. And now mankind and everybody that comes from Adam is dead in their sins, separated from God. And so what is the mission? Jesus had to go get a great multitude of Adam's progeny and rescue them and bring them back to God. But in order to do that, Jesus had to obey the law of God perfectly because Adam failed to obey God. And when Adam failed to obey God, human righteousness was lost. It's gone. And we can't dwell with a righteous and holy God in our unrighteous state. Nothing unrighteous can come near to him and taint his holy character. And so how... Is the unrighteous going to draw near to the righteous when the unrighteous cannot, is completely unable to make itself righteous? How's that going to happen? And in fact, God gave his law. It wasn't just his one command in the garden. But after the fall, centuries later, God gives a particular law to his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And this law is God's command, and it's the command that tells the people of God in the Old Testament, do this and you will live, do this and you will die. 
But here's the problem. This law, this law was only meant to illuminate, to shine a light, to display human sinfulness that was already there. This law was intended to show God's holiness, to display our sinfulness, and not to show us how we can save ourselves to show us how a Savior was coming from outside of us. So it's meant to show God's holiness, our sinfulness, and to show us what is needed, which is a Savior. And so Jesus is necessary. His work is necessary because of sin and because the law has condemned us, because we've broken God's law, every one of us. Which leads us to question number three. How, how did Jesus accomplish this? So he's got this mission to redeem all of his people that the Father has given him. It's necessary because we've been separated from God by our sin and our disobedience to God. All of us have participated in this. And you might say, you might say, let me just back up just a little addendum to uh, question number two. You might say, well, wait a minute. I wasn't in the garden. If I was there, I might have done differently than Adam and Eve. Okay, John Wayne, easy now, easy, 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 easy. Do you really think that? And by the way, if that's the case, how is your perfect obedience going now? Okay, I mean, just, just, a, just a, can I just offer this? Just a touch of humility? Just a touch might be good? The point is, friends, is that all of us, the Bible says unequivocally that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, 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 and what's in view there is the glory of God and how our sin is in view of God's glory and goodness, not how our sin compares to other people around us. We, we want to do that. We want to look and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy or that guy. But that's not what we will be judged by. We will be judged according to the holiness of God, which none of us can stand in front of on our own in our sin, no matter how seemingly minimal it is on an earthly, human, horizontal level. And so we got a problem. we got a problem. We are separated from God. Jesus has come to rescue us because we're separated from God. But how, how, here's the question number three, how does Jesus actually rescue us? How does this rescue mission happen? How did he accomplish this? How does he descend from the rope and snatch us out of death? How does he bring us back to the Father? I want to give you two thoughts on how he accomplishes this through his, okay, this is going to be a little theological, but you can handle it. I know you can. I know you can. Through his active obedience and through his passive obedience. What do I mean by that? So in a, in a grand category, through Jesus' obedience to the law. See, we need somebody to obey for us. Human righteousness has been lost by Adam. We're all represented in Adam. We need a new man. We need a new head. We need somebody to restore righteousness. We need somebody to, to bring us back to God and make us righteous so that we can stand before God. Who's going to do that? Who will obey for us? I can't follow the law of God perfectly. Sometimes I can. I might have a couple good months, but then I mess up again, and I am, I'm separated from God. I'm, I'm, I'm lost in my sin. I can't do it. So who? Who will obey for me? Jesus will obey for us is the answer to the question. And how does Jesus obey through his active obedience and through his passive obedience? What do I mean by that? His active obedience is referring to his actual life, his actual obedience to everything that God told him to do, the 
actual obedience that Jesus, in perfect detail, fulfilled and lived in accordance with and in a perfect obedience to the law of God, every command of God, where we have all failed in some respect. Jesus actually had to become, he's the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, very God of very God from eternity, but he actually had to become a human that actually obeyed the law in our place in order to accomplish this mission. Let me give you some verses that support this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Isn't that a beautiful mystery? The son of God, God himself, now under the very law that he gave to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that's us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So just like we are humans coming out of Adam, he's our human head, Jesus becomes a human like us, never stops being God, fully God, truly God, but truly human, becomes our representative. He had to do it to become like us so that he could represent us to God. And he does it perfectly. Hebrews chapter 4 says, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, I mean he came down to the earth, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest, or in other words, a representative who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. That means, and friends, this is a grand and glorious mystery that we cannot fully comprehend, but we can see and believe and hold on to and trust is that the Son of God, God himself, very God a very God, became a real human and stood in our place and tastes everything that we taste, yet resisting it without sin. That's who Jesus is. That's what he has become. And this is how Hebrews actually summarize that, summarizes that in Hebrews 5.9. By the way, Hebrews is important, man. My goodness, Hebrews is important. Um, I mean, well, the whole Bible is important, actually. But we're going to do Hebrews soon because Hebrews, Hebrews has got some pop to it. Hebrews 5, verse 9. And being made, this is speaking of Jesus, and being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What does that mean? How, how can the already eternally perfect God the Son actually be made perfect? What does that mean? Well, he can't become anything that he isn't already, except that he becomes truly a human. And what I think the writer of Hebrews is saying there is that the humanity, the incarnation, the enfleshing of the Son of God was necessary. He had to be made perfect. He had to be made a human who actually perfected, perfectly obeyed God in order to become the source of salvation for all of us. So do you see that Jesus, the question is, how is he accomplishing this? Through his actual life and his actual obedience along the way, every step of the way, resisting sin, obeying the Father, saying yes to him. 
Jesus summarizes it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 15, 17, and 18. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, to obey them completely and satisfy their demands. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Because here's the thing about the law, friends. I didn't mention this earlier, but here's the thing you must know about the law. The law wasn't just a command of how we should live in the Old Testament, but the law also included punishments for disobedience. And in fact, the whole Old Testament is full of punishments and sacrifices for disobedience. But those sacrifices could never fully satisfy. In fact, they were intended to be shadows that pointed to the true and better sacrifice. So God, for example, in Leviticus chapter 16, he called for the people of Israel to have this big day of atonement where they brought all these animals and they would sacrifice these animals for their sins because sin had to be punished. And so they would sacrifice the animals on the yearly day of atonement. But the problem was, even though God would accept these sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, it wouldn't really ever deal with the root cause of, of sin, the nature. It, it could appease God sort of temporarily, but it didn't change their nature. And so we need something better. We need something better than bulls and goats or our works or our grit or our willpower or our decisions. We need a representative to actually recapture to obey, to stand in our place with his perfect righteousness. And we don't need a bull or a goat or a bird. We need a man that has obeyed God perfectly. And we need justice, not just a man. We need a man who is not just a human, but we need a man who is God himself, who has enough holiness to satisfy all of the holiness of God himself. And so Jesus, in his act of obedience recaptures all of the righteousness that Adam lost. This is how Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 summarize it. For God has done what the law, <coughs> weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the law, the law it's not like the law um, was sort of God's plan A and it didn't go well, so let's Sin Jesus is plan B. The law was never intended to save. It was only intended to accuse. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Notice that phrase in verse 4. In order that Jesus died on the cross, he condemned sin. What is that? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8, verse 4, is that the, the, the requirement of the law, the demand of the law, the sacrifice that the law demands for disobedience to God, which none of us could bear, Jesus satisfies. He drinks all of God's justice dry on the cross. And he could do that because of his perfection, because he actually obeyed in our actual place. His active obedience. But secondly, it's not just his life, his perfect life. 
he actually then had to take that perfect life and lay it down in our place as a sacrifice on the cross. So that perfect life had to, had to bear the penalty for our sin. And that is his passive obedience. In other words, this is happening to Jesus. So in Jesus' life, think of active and passive. I know those are strange sort of old theological words. But in his active obedience, Jesus is growing all the way as a young man. He's growing up into a man and he's actively obeying God. He's doing everything that God prescribes. And in his passive obedience is referring to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross where he is receiving the penalty in our place for our sins on the cross. His passive obedience. This is what the prophet Isaiah says about this obedience of Christ on the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him. He's laid on him the iniquity of us all. So God is laying on Jesus. So what's Jesus doing on the cross It's not just a a show of care and concern and servant love. It is God putting on him, laying on him, our sin. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses or our sins and raised for our justification. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you've been healed and i don't think that's a promise of physical healing in this life healing meaning by his wounds by his sin bearing sacrifice on the cross your the chasm of the canyon of your sin between you and a holy god has been bridged you've been healed spiritually in christ Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Listen to this. This he, meaning Jesus, set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so all of our sins, everything that we've done, the secret things, the public things, the obvious things, the things we aren't even aware of that accuse us, that that God would accuse us because of his holy law before him, the things that separate us, the things that kept us from ever drawing near to God, Jesus takes the penalty for it in his obedience on the cross and he nails the requirement of the law. He satisfies what the law demands on the cross and he says, it is finished, it's done. That's what Jesus has done in his obedience, his actual living, his active obedience, and his actual dying, his passive obedience on the cross. So what's the result? What's the result? The penalty of the law of God, the holy, good, righteous law of God is satisfied. It's it's satisfied. It's answered. And righteousness, human righteousness has been restored. We have a new head. So this is really important. It's not just on the cross that guilt has been removed. We're not just brought to like a, a, a zero ledger. But there's an imputation. Righteousness has been recaptured. Jesus takes our sin. Our sin is imputed. It's reckoned to him. He takes it in our place. He can bear it. He can satisfy it. He can take his penalty because he is infinitely holy and completely righteous in his humanity. And then we get, we receive his righteousness. So we are not merely 
called not guilty because of what Jesus has done, but we are called the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus does on the cross. That's the result. So, what's his mission? To redeem those that the Father has given him. Why is it necessary? Because sin has separated us. How has he accomplished it? Through his life, death, and, resur- through his life, death, and resurrection. How did he accomplish it? Through his obedience. Now, here's the question. How, how does this actually become ours? How does this work that Jesus has done, it is finished, how does it go from the cross actually to our lives? How does it happen? How do we acquire these benefits? The answer is through faith, through saving faith. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. He prays that he would be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which can't produce righteousness as we've seen, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul is saying here in Philippians 3 that this righteousness that we need to draw near to God, to be brought to him, depends on faith. And it's not anything that we do. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. In other words, you, you, you do a job, you work, you're entitled to pay. But he says in verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 4 is we're not saved by our works. We're saved by faith in Jesus' work, and then his righteousness is credited to us. So we are, it becomes ours, this work of Jesus' obedience... His perfect act of obedience, all the righteousness of his obedience, and then the sin-bearing wrath, penalty, satisfying death of Jesus on the cross, all of that benefit, that guilt removed, that righteousness given, becomes ours through faith. But how do we get this faith? Am I saying, is the Bible saying, reach down deep inside, Johnny, Susie? You know, we cue up the Whitney Houston side. I, uh, I found the greatest love of all deep inside me. Uh, I'm not, you know, the Whitney song, right? Whatever. I found the greatest love of all within me. Is that where the Bible sends us? Within ourselves to try harder? No, it says that that faith must be given to us by God. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He's indicted humanity in the first three verses. He says, we're dead in our sins. We're dead. There's nothing we can do. Dead people can't do anything. Dead people can't have faith. How are dead people going to exercise faith? Jesus has come. He's lived a perfect life. He's died on the cross. Now, how will all of the benefits of Jesus' work, how will it actually come to us? How will it actually do something in us? How will it rescue us? Through the instrument, through the gift of faith. And this is how God gives it. Verse 4, Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's just summarize that. You're dead. Your heart isn't beating. There's no impulse. There's nothing in you that God is responding to. But as Paul says, what's the grounding? What's the logic? What's the foundation? What's the motivation of God giving you a new heart? Because he sees something in you? No, he made us alive even when we were dead in our trespasses because, verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's the foundation. That's the motivation of God to give these new hearts. He gives a new heart, and that new heart then is equipped with the gift package of faith. That heart now, where it was unable to exercise faith, now is unable to exercise faith. That heart is alive. Its first breath, its first look is to Jesus because where it was blind, now it can see. And the first thing it sees is the irresistible beauty of the sweet son of God who died for them. They realize now he's our only, he's my only hope. And that heart turns away from itself and it trusts in Jesus. And it can do that. Because that faith has been installed in our hearts because of God's great love. I think I've told you this before. We live off a river road, and we live probably, I don't know, 200 meters or so from River Road in a house that was built after the water line was put in along River Road. And there was a county water line is a counter water line going on River Road, traveling north and south. And something had to happen for water to go from that water line, that main county water line, to our house. A trench had to be dug. A water line had to be installed. And that's a picture of what God does when he saves a person. You must have faith in order to be saved. You, you, you must have water in your house. I know this. I've been through several pregnancies of children, and I've figured that you, know, you need a shower and you need toilets at work in your house. You, 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 gotta, you need water. You need water. But that water needs something to happen. To get to your house, you need a water line installed. And I think what Ephesians 2 is telling us is that salvation is God giving you a new heart it's God turning on that water, and it's God putting that water line in you so that you can receive. Do you, do, you have to, do you have to trust in Jesus? Do you have to make a real decision? Yes. But that water line, that instrument of faith, that wire that you receive that message is something that God puts in you. And you exercise faith in Jesus, and then here's what happens. This is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when we have faith in Jesus that's been installed in us, God in his sweet loving kindness gives us a new heart. We have this line that's been 
that has been trenched in our heart, and now we can believe, now we can believe, the water turns on in our heart. We see, we see Jesus, and we see that he took our sin, and he gives us his righteousness, and we are his. Then, then, in that moment, all that is Jesus's, all that is his righteousness is ours. And all of our sin has been taken away. It's his. It's gone. And even though you will still deal with crud and issues and remaining sin in your life, the truest thing about you is that the mission is accomplished. Jesus has bought you. It's finished. You're his. You've got some work to do. That's called sanctification. But the saving, he did it. It's done. It's finished. You're his. Last question by way of application. Okay, that's wonderful. Thank you for this doctrinal lesson today, Brad. How does this help me today? First to the Christian. If this is where your trust is, this is the truest thing about you. Well, what about, yeah, but I'm dealing with, okay, this, listen. The truest thing about you Where's your hope? Where's your hope? Where, where you're going to stand before the Lord someday? Are you, are you trusting in Christ alone? If you say yes to that, and, and that doesn't mean that you're overcoming victoriously in every area of your life. It doesn't mean that everything is going well for you, but you must stand before the Lord today. You must stand before the Lord someday, and Christian is the answer to the question, are you trusting in Christ? If that is the case, that is the truest thing about you, and he has promised that you will get all the way home. Live from this truth. Rest in this truth. Rehearse this truth. The world will do everything it can to make you forget this truth or be blurry about this truth or think that this truth only applies to the beginning of the Christian life and not the rest of the Christian life. We are not just saved one time by this truth. We are continually being saved, changed day by day. We cling to this. It's the truest thing. We fight sin with this. No, this is the truest thing about me. I don't have to go back to that old way. I don't have to bow down to that former master because I have a new master. And I remember that. And I read God's word. And I fellowship with God's people. And I fight and I cling and I hold on. That's the truest thing. We, we, we live in a culture that, has, that wants to do everything but encourage us to a little bit of grit. We, everybody gets patted on their back and gets orange slices for two innings and a trophy for everything. We have to develop grit. And the truest thing about you if you're a Christian is that God wasn't waiting for you to come to him. It's not based on all of your effort. But Jesus, in his glorious love, descended into the lower parts of this messy earth. He got you. He grabbed you. He made you alive. And he promises to bring you all the way home. That's the truest thing about you. Fight sin with that. Fight discouragement with that. Remember that. That's why we need to remember the gospel. The gospel is for Christians. Secondly, if you're not a believer, how does this help you? Oh, friends, this is really good news. You might think, oh my gosh, it's all up to God? That seems like, well, that seems sort of disorienting. It's disorienting because we live in a fallen world that is based on a system that says that it's all up to you. 
And that's an exhausting way to live. And we've, we've already learned from all the scriptures that we've read today that no one can live that way successfully before God. And so really, actually, if you think about it for just half a second, this is actually really good news. You mean that no matter what I have done, God can save somebody like me? Yes. You mean that as weak as I feel, as, as conflicted as I feel, God can save somebody like me? You may think, I don't really fully understand all of this. Don't I have to come to a better sort of theological or mental or academic or philosophical understanding of these things in order to accept them? No. You've been in a plane before, right? You're in a metal tube that's up in the air. How, do you even know how that works? This, there's a, come on, you know this. There's a, this is a piece of plastic. I talked to somebody from India this week on this little box. I punched some numbers. Stuff went up in the air. It, something up in the air grabbed it and sent it down into India to another guy who's talking into a little box. And I didn't question a bit of it. Friends, don't you think that the mysterious glories of the salvation of his people is just a touch more mysterious and glorious than cell phone technology? Friends, I'm just telling you this. If you doubt this, friends, you're not saved based on your rationale or your logic or your arguments. I'm not trying to say put your, check your brain at the door. There are serious discussions and things to be said and things to be figured out and good answers to be had. But I'm just telling you that that will only get you so far. This is a miracle that God would do this. So I'm asking you, to consider this, you will stand before God someday. What will your plea be that you ran a pretty good race, that you finished well? Or will it be that you're trusting in Jesus who finished it for you? That's your only hope, friends. You, you don't need to sign a card. You don't need to recite a prayer. You don't need, you don't need some, you don't, all those things can be helpful. But right now, you need to trust in Jesus. And I believe if that is swelling up in your heart, friends, I think that's good evidence that God is trenching a line of faith in your heart. He's giving you a new heart. Breathe, look up, trust in Jesus now. This is what Spurgeon says, and I'll end with this. Spurgeon was a super fantastic preacher back in the 1800s. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, preached in London. We affectionately call him around here Uncle Chuck. He said, let this one great gracious glorious fact lie in your spirit till it permeates all your thoughts. He's speaking to unbelievers here. And make you rejoice even though you are without strength. According to the scriptures, it is a revealed fact that in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for church folks, for the ungodly, when they were yet without strength. You've heard these words hundreds of times maybe, and yet you've never before perceived their meaning. There is a wonderful savor about them, is there not? Jesus did not die for our righteousness, but he died for our sins. He did not come to save us because we were worth the saving, but because we were utterly worthless, ruined, and undone. He came not to earth out of any reason that was in us, 
but solely and only out of reasons which he fetched from the depths of his own divine love. In due time, he died for those whom he describes, not as godly, but as ungodly, applying to them as hopeless an adjective as he could well have selected. If you have but a little mind, that's Spurgeon's kind of quaint way of saying, if, if you're not super sharp, yet fasten it to this truth, which is fitted to the smallest capacity and is able to cheer the heaviest heart. Let this text lie under your tongue like a sweet morsel till it dissolves into your heart and flavors all your thoughts. And then it will be little matter what those thoughts should be. As scat- then it will little matter that those thoughts should be as scattered as autumn leaves. Persons who have never shown in science nor displayed the least originality of mind have nevertheless been fully able to accept the doctrine of the cross and have been saved thereby. Why should not you? He's rich in mercy. Jesus gets all of his people. I believe he's coming after you. And he accomplishes his mission. Trust in him today. Trust in him today. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for these words that Jesus uttered on the cross. They are, they are so glorious. It's finished. So Lord, remind us believers that we're not saved by our righteousness. We're saved by Jesus' righteousness. And open up the eyes of anybody in this room who thinks that they're unsavable, that they're far from grace. That's not the case. Jesus came for sinners. Give new hearts, Lord, so that they can look on Jesus and be saved. In Jesus' name I pray.